This evening we continue in our memorable, notable verses series, like Pastor Cruz had introduced for us at the beginning of our service together. And the verse to which we will be looking this evening is Job chapter 1, verse 21. And you are welcome to turn there in your Bibles, or you can follow along above as we will be making use of the screen tonight. So Job chapter 1, verse 21, and it reads this way. And he said, and that he is being Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe what we will see tonight is that this verse summarizes the book of Job as a whole. All right? The heart of Job the man, the contest between God's word and Satan's schemes, and the sovereign hand of God at work is all prominent within this one verse. So our theme tonight for this evening is this. A proper view of God's sovereignty produces a proper response to God. A proper view of God's sovereignty produces a proper response to God. And before we dissect this verse, I think it's important to take the time to analyze both the man who made this comment in verse 21 and the circumstances that this man that produces his, this response. And what we're going to see is that Chapter 1 builds upon itself, and all that is said preceding this verse brings great clarity to its understanding. And what we will also see is that the characteristic of this man, Job, reveals the reason of why he can give such a bold response. So first, I think it's important to analyze the man. Who was Job? First thing we learn in Job chapter 1 is that Job was a godly man. Job 1 verse 1 reads this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Isn't that super fascinating, right? In the very first verse of a 42-chapter-long book, this is what we get, right? We're told that Job is a godly and faithful man. What, what a testimony. Job was a guiltless man who lived in the way of what was right. All right, we see in Job 1.1, there's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. And the words here literally mean complete and straight. So Job walked on the straight path completely, if you will. And what characterized this straight path, you may ask? What does it mean to be blameless and upright? Well, we get that answer right after this phrase. Following this phrase, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Right? Job feared God and departed from any path that could lead him to live in opposition, right? opposition to righteousness. And this phrase at the end of the verse 1 nearly replicates many similar verses in the book of Proverbs. Right? Proverbs speaks of wisdom. I think that's a fairly um, universal idea in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs speaks of wisdom and how it is to be ingrained into God's chosen people. And as Proverbs 14.6 states, one who is wise is cautious. And this, this word for cautious is an iteration of the same word for fear in Job 1.1. Right? So one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. So Job was wise unto God, for he had a legit fear, a terror and a reverence of who God was power that he displayed, the sovereignty he exercised, and the praise 
that was due his name. And because of that understanding of who God was, Job turned from evil and walked blamelessly in the straight path. God meant more to Job than what other paths that the world could offer, could offer him. The scriptures tell us in verse 1 that Job was godly. It is, it's very clear. It says it right there. Um, but the scriptures don't stop at that. We are also told one way in which that godliness was manifested. Look with me at verse 5. Job chapter 5. And kind of to give you a, a frame of reference, this is Job's, uh, this is the narrative, and it's, it's referencing his children right after they have feasted together. This is what Job did. All right, Job chapter 1, verse 5 reads this way. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, them that is being his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job feared God, yes, for himself first, but also on behalf of his family. The word translated as consecration means to set apart. It means to sanctify. So when Job offered these burnt offerings of consecration, he was seeking to restore his children to favor with God for any potential sin that they may have committed. He was purging the evil from his midst. From his midst. He wanted himself and his family to fear God and turn from evil. His mindset of, far be it from me that I should sin against God, was amplified to his children. He was saying, far be it from my children that they should sin against God as well. And the scriptures take it even a step further and say that thus Job did continually. This consecration, this sanctification was done on a continual basis. What does godly wisdom, what does blameless living look like? Well, it means to fear God, turning from evil on a perpetual basis, and to seek the same from others. So our first point of application this evening is this. Does the fear of God, does the fear of the Lord dictate your life? All right, Job turned from sin, and he interceded for the potential sins of his children. Do you seek holiness? Do you pray for your children on a regular basis? You teach them the ways of godly living and pray that the Holy Spirit will grip their hearts to live righteously. You lead your children by example, and not just by example here and there, but do you continually, as Job did, live in a way that your children will see your blameless life and turn from sin as well? Job sought purity in his family. That is what the fear of the Lord does in our homes. So do you seek the same in your homes? A family that turns from grumbling, from complaining, and is marked by thankfulness for the goodness and grace of God in our lives. A family that truly fears God and turns from evil. So let that thought ponder in your minds as we continue on. And moving along in our analysis of the man of Job, we see that the scriptures show us that Job was a very rich man. He was a very rich man. Job 1.3 says he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. God had blessed Job with wealth and riches so that he was the most prominent man on the earth at his time. God was gracious to this godly man. 
Scripture show us that God was blessed with a unified family. In Job chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, this is what it says. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And then jumping to verse 4, it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So not only was Job blessed with many children, but he had children that loved one another. Wednesday night, Steve Jr. and I, we've been going through the 12 sons of Jacob, and something that comes up over and over again in, in the story of Jacob and his sons is that Jacob had a very, very broken family, all right? There were favor- favorites in his family. There were brothers that hated the favoritism and acted in very wicked ways. There were brothers that slaughtered others for the sake of revenge, and there was even a son who slept with Jacob's wife. So Jacob's family was a mess, And we don't see that here with Job. We see a unified family. Brothers inviting brothers and sisters for festivities on a regular basis. What a blessing that must have been for Job, to have children who loved one another. Now, from a worldly perspective, Job had made a comfortable life for himself. He followed a religion that brought him wealth and prosperity. That was the view. He followed a religion that brought him wealth and prosperity. In prosperity. He was the wealthiest man of his time. He had a large family, he had sons and daughters that brought honor and joy to his name. From a worldly perspective, he had made it. He was living the life the world would deem perfect. But what we will see is that Job knew that none of this came from his own doing. He had not made this life for himself. His fear of God was not just a means to, to maintain what he had, it was not a good luck charm. But his fear of God, his recognition of who God was, was manifested in a faithful response when all the world came crashing down. So look with me at Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12, as we consider the heavenly challenge that, that, is, that is presented. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, read this way. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. So we see that the narrative here takes a shift. The focus of the story shifts to a heavenly backdrop, and we see that Satan is given an account of his activities before God. Now notice with me uh, the level of authority that is proposed here, and I think it's incredibly important to note. So notice these points with me, and pay careful attention as to whom is exercising authority within this challenge. First we see it is God to whom Satan presents himself, and not vice versa. Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Secondly, we see it is God who asks the question for which Satan must give an account. 
Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? God is the one asking the question here. Next we see it is God to whom Satan must give an answer. In verse 6, starting or Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord. Next we see it is God who highlights Job to Satan, thus commencing the events that follow. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan responds that it is because of God's blessing that Job fears and turns from evil, but immediately following this conclusion that Satan draws, it is God who gives permission and boundaries to Satan in the treatment of Job. Verse 12 reads, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. You see, it is God at work in all of this. Yes, Satan's involved, but it is God who exercises authority and grants the permission in Satan's acting. And what we will come to see when we get to our key verse is that Job recognizes this. It is God at work. It is his sovereign hand that has control, and in a moment we will see how Job's proper view of God's sovereignty produces a proper response to God. Though his world would be flipped upside down, he knows who is at work and the reaction that is due his glorious name. But before we get there, let's take a closer look with me at verses 9 through 11 and really analyze this challenge. Verse 9 through 11 reads this way, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. I would like to take a moment here to consider the proposition, the challenge. God says in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns from evil? God says to Satan to consider his faithful and righteous servant Job. There is none like him on the earth. Job is a true servant of the Lord. Satan proposes that if all of God's earthly blessings are removed from Job's life, then Job will certainly sin by cursing God. Surely Job's fear of God cannot be sincere. Right? These earthly possessions act as a shield around Job's faith. And the minute you remove that protection, the real characteristics of Job will show. And Satan believes that Job only serves God because of his blessed life. Therefore, the true colors of Job, the way he truly views God in his heart, is not as fearful and God-honoring as God proposes or supposes. And that is the thought of Satan. God accepts this challenge and allows Satan to treat all of Job's property in any way that he chooses, yet he may not lift a hand against the man himself. So now we move on to the calamity, considering the calamity. So what takes place? What does Satan do? Satan attacks Job's hedge of protection, destroying his wealth and children. Look with me at verses 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You know, what a whirlwind, a whirlwind of events. You know, back to back to back, Job loses almost everything that he has. Everything that we just learned about Job's wealth, mentioned in verses 2 and through 4, it's gone. It's gone in an instant. You actually go back to verse, or verses 2 through 4, you can actually cross off in your Bibles what is taken away from him, and it's everything that's mentioned. Verse 3, we observe that Job had 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Well, verse 14 and 15 shows us that this is the first to go. Verse 14 begins, And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. In verse 3, we observe that Job had 7,000 sheep. Well, verse 16 tells us that those sheep are the second part of loss in, in the calamity that, that strikes Job. Verse 16 says, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Back in verse 3, we observe that Job had 3,000 camels. Well, verse 17 tells us that the camels are part of this third wave of loss. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. In verse 3, we observe that Job had many servants. Well, in all three of these waves of calamity, he loses his servants among the animals. And then finally, what is most dear and precious to him of all possessions, in verse 2, we observe that Job had seven sons and three daughters. Then here in verse 18 and 19, this is his fourth wave of loss. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Everything is gone in a moment. Right? It's overwhelming. It's hard to read and wonder how Job physically took all that he had. How did he physically take all this in all at once? And Job tells us in verse 18 of chapter 9 how he's feeling in all of this. All right? And listen to what he says in verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, He, that being in reference to the Lord, so the Lord will not let me get my breath. Job is suffocated with this news. What does remain... What is still in Job's possession, as we learn in chapter 2, is either taken from him later or becomes a thorn in his side. In chapter 2, we see that his health remains, but Satan is allowed to take that. It's completely destroyed. His wife also remains, but in chapter 2, we learn that she becomes a snare, a possible snare to him. His friends remain, all right? They arrive in chapter 2, and we see that they become a grief to him, not very encouraging to him. So what remains that seems to give him his only sense of earthly comfort, all right, is a broken piece of pottery that he uses to scrape his wounds. That is what's left from an earthly perspective that brings him some sort of, some sort of relief, some sort of comfort. 
So Job is brought to wit's end. He has faced the extent of calamity that the world can offer. He has faced it all. And that brings us to our key verse this evening, considering Job's response. Job's response to all that has taken place can be found in verses 20 and 21, and it reads this way. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. First, we get an account of Job's physical response to calamity, his physical response. He acts sorrowful, he is grief-stricken. In verse 20, it tells us that he tore his robe and shaved his head. So the tearing of the robe was a symbol of grief and sorrow, and we see it oftentimes in scriptures. We see it in Reuben, we see it in David, Elisha, we see it in Paul, and many others throughout the scriptures. And what they all had in common was this. They were all in bitter grief at the time of the tearing of their, their clothing. So Reuben, that's the son of Jacob, he tore his clothes when he saw that his brother Joseph was missing at the watch of his brothers. There's some grief there. David, he tore his clothes when he heard that the king and his son, that being Saul and Jonathan at the time, they were slain in battle. Elisha, he tore his clothes when he saw that his predecessor, Elijah, his mentor, he saw him be taken away from him and into heaven. Paul and Barnabas tore their garments when the people worshipped them instead of God. And Job, in utter grief at the loss of nearly all that he had, he tore his robe. And we also see that he shaved his head, which was a custom of the time in showing grief as well. While in sorrow, Job bowed down and worshipped prostrate before the Lord. Verse 20 then tells us, And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And this is where I want to spend the remainder of our time this evening together. Job's incredible response of exaltation and praise to the one who controls all things. Listen to Job's response of praise in verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job had a proper view of God. Although Satan said otherwise, although Satan said he would curse God, Job was truly a God-fearer and blameless and upright in his life. And that is going to be crucial as we analyze Job's response. First, we see that Job's proper view of God's sovereignty produces a proper understanding of the vulnerability of human existence. We see that Job's proper view of God's sovereignty produces a proper understanding of the vulnerability of human existence. Job 1.21 in the beginning reads this way, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Nakedness, all right, nakedness. The naked body, it, it brings a negative connotation to our minds. It's, it's embarrassing to say, it's embarrassing to think about. And why? Why is it so embarrassing to think about? And it's because it represents vulnerability and humiliation. Right? It represents vulnerability and humiliation. Christ our Savior, he was naked upon the cross. And we, we never see images of that. And we don't want to think about that. And why is that? It's because it, it exposes privacy. It, it humiliates. It's, 
It's gross to think about. Job says, I came naked from my mother's womb. I have come into this world with nothing. I've come into this world humble and vulnerable. Nothing is deserved, yet so much is taken for granted. Job recognized the the frailty and the vulnerability of human existence. We are born with nothing but our naked bodies. The rest of this verse seems quite strange at first glance. When Job says, naked shall I return, it could easily sound like he is saying he shall enter into the womb once again. But the reference here of the womb is actually referring to, to the means of entering the world. All right. So by saying, naked shall I return, Job is not referring to birth as much as he is referring to exiting the world. All right. So Job enters the world naked, and he exits the world naked. So what Job means by this is that everything we receive in life is by the good hand of God. Right? Human beings, they bring nothing into the world, and human beings cannot bring any earthly thing out of the world. Upon death, we are stripped, of, we're stripped bare of any status we may have, any materials we may possess, and we enter the dust of the earth with nothing. And apart from God's provision and grace in our lives, naked and helpless we remain as we live. See, human life is transient and simple. Anything we receive in life is by the good hand of God. And anything that we do not receive or is taken away from us is by the orchestration of the good hand of God as well. On our own, we offer nothing. We are vulnerable, helpless creatures. Job understood this. He understood the human condition of existence under a sovereign God. And by stating this observation of the human condition, what was Job actually communicating about his own character? What was the saying about Job's outlook on life. When he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return, Job is saying that he is content with his condition. Yes, the world has has flipped. The world had burned down around him. His wealth, his children are dead. He is in utter grief. That is not to be forgotten. That's not to be put aside. But since Job understands that he cannot bring anything into or take anything from the world, He is content to rest in God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7 reads this way, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job had great gain, for he understood how to be content in a grief-stricken world. But how? How could he be so content with this vulnerable aspect of the human condition? Well, we see this answer in the next part of the verse. Job chapter 1, verses, verse 21 again says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job's proper view of God's sovereignty produced a proper understanding that God establishes one's condition. Job understood it was God at work. God's hand was over the situation. Job understood that God is the giver of all things, right? This this phrase begins with, the Lord gave. All the blessings that Job had, his wealth, his family, all of it, it came from God. did not come from his own hand. Job understood that he was not the giver of all things in his own life. It was God who blessed the toil of Job. 
Job's toil and hard work was not the root of his wealth and family. John Carmack, I didn't know of him before I went into this lesson, but John Carmack, he is an incredibly gifted computer programmer and he's a video game developer. And he was the co-founder of ID Software and is recognized as one of the pioneers of 3D gaming. All right, he's one of the pioneers of 3D gaming. He's a very, very successful man. And listen to what he has to say about success. All right, this is his view about what it means to be successful. And pay attention to this very first line. He says, focused hard work is the real key to success. Keep your eyes on the goal and just keep taking the next steps towards completing it. If you aren't sure which way to do something, do it both ways and see which works better. Hard work and perseverance are the keys to blessing. Right? What I can do, how I can press on, the solutions I am able to find are what brings success. So that's what John Carmack says, and that's often the view of, of people today, many, many people today. That's what the world teaches. It's the mindset of a sinful culture, right? What I can give myself. If I work hard enough, if I persevere, and I'm not downgrading hard work and perseverance, that's important, but if I do that, the outcome will be success, right? I can give myself wealth. I can give myself possessions. I can give myself success. But what does Job say? He says, the Lord gave God is the giver of all things. Job understood that God is the remover of things in our life as well. Next part of this phrase says, and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. God is the one who has taken away his wealth and his family. Job does not say that it was the Sabians and the Chaldeans who take away, but it was God who both gives and takes. Now the reader, the reader of the story, has the knowledge of the heavenly dialogue that's taking place between God and Satan. And the reader may even conclude that it is Satan who is responsible for the withdrawal of Job's possessions. But as we saw in the heavenly challenge that is put forth, God has the complete authority. Satan was involved, yes, but God orchestrates and gives permission. The authority starts and ends with God. God gives, God withdraws, nothing is done apart from his permissive will. So, with all of this godly knowledge, with all of this understanding of who, uh, understanding of God's sovereignty and man's frailty, all right, and his vulnerability, what is Job's ultimate response? What does this move Job to do? And here it is. Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a magnificent response. Right? This is the climax of the entire chapter. Right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job blesses God. In grief, Job blesses the name of the Almighty. To bless means to give a good word. Right? Job acknowledges, he exalts and praises the good name of God. Why? Because he understands that mankind deserves nothing. Because he understands that it is God behind the giving and withdrawing. And for that, Job is able to exalt God. Job understands the grace of God in his life. The Lord gave, and the Lord gave bountifully to Job. Right? He was the most prominent man on the world. God was gracious to him. The Lord also took away. And for that, God was gracious to him as well. You may ask why. 
It's because Job was reminded that it is God behind all the giving, right? The old adage, you never know what you've got until it's gone, right? In loss, Job was reminded of how much God had given. And God bringing Job to that point of remembrance was an outworking of God's grace. We see that Job's response brings glory to God. Remember the context of Job's suffering. There is a heavenly challenge between or behind Job's troubles. And remember what Satan said Job would do if God took away all that he had. If, Job, if God took away this shield around Job, Satan said that Job would surely curse God to his face. Right? And that's, in chapter 2, we're not going to touch that tonight, but that's what his wife does. Right? His wife says, curse God and die. Satan expects that same response from Job. But what does Job do? He blesses God. He gives a good word to God's name. He trusts in God's provision and God's outworking. And he has no, no need to fret. And why doesn't he need to fret? It's because everything from his life, all right, his riches, his family, his health, all of it, everything in his life can be taken away. But God can't be taken away. God will never leave him. God will always be there, rolling and governing with goodness. Job would rather have God than all these possessions. He can trust in God's good hand. And ascribe goodness to God in the darkest of nights. And why? Because as we learned in the beginning, Job was a blameless and upright man. God meant more to him than riches and prosperity. God was truly his everything. And as long as he lived, he could bless the name of the Lord. So what a testimony. What an example. What glory is brought to the name of God. And the chapter closes with a beautiful furtherance of Job's response. In verse 22... In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When we have a proper view of who God is, we can have a proper response of God's outworkings. So, we see Job's response to God's giving and withdrawing. Tonight, I want to ask the question, what is our response to this memorable verse this evening? And I have three points of application. The first one is this. Know that God gives and that God takes away. Job understood that. All right, we, we looked at that. He understood that what he possessed was not his own. He did not deserve the goodness that God had given to him. Likewise, we are all very, very, very blessed in many, many, many different ways. And don't let that cloud your understanding. If you have a wealthy job, if you have a successful career, God has given you that. You have an honorable family, one that serves and honors God. God has given you that. If you're even just be able to pay your bills, if you're able to survive, God has provided and given you that as well. What does Job do in response to all that, all that he had? He says, the Lord gave, blessed be the name of the Lord. When that is all removed, what does Job do in response? He says, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us be moved to thankfulness for the goodness of God in our lives. It's not just the good for which we are to be thankful, but also the calamity that we face. For calamity reveals the grace of God in our lives. It brings to remembrance the goodness that God has bestowed upon us. And when the goodness is hard to remember, because our grief is so great, when that goodness is hard to cling on to, it draws our eyes to God, who we know governs all things. Right? And, e and when even that is hard to remember, that God is in control, we must pray for strength to cling to a sovereign God, for there is no greater comfort in all the earth. 
My second application point is be faithful, for God has brought glory in ways that we are unaware. You know, oftentimes we can see the outcomes of obedience, and we can see the possible outcomes of disobedience. You know, the guilt and consequences from sin can be avoided, and we are often thankful that we never went down the path of cursing God or sinning against God. In hindsight, we are thankful that God keeps us faithful, for we can see where unfaithfulness could lead. But what about the unseen ways in which God has brought glory for obedience? In the story, Job was not aware of the heavenly challenge. And he was not aware of what was going on behind the scenes. Satan said that if you remove Job's possessions, then Job would curse God. Job had no knowledge of this heavenly conversation. Perhaps if he did, if Job had knowledge of this, it would have been a great motivation to vindicate the name of the Lord. Right? It would have been motivated him, but he didn't have that. Yet he remained faithful. All right? He remained faithful. And as a result, the name of the Lord is exalted, and Satan's schemes, of course, never succeed. We need to remain faithful, for God has often brought glory in ways that we are completely unaware. You know, people are always watching our actions. They see us. They analyze our response to situations. Then they go home and they dwell on them. You know, why did they do that? Why did he or she say this or that? And we may never know how our actions affect a person or even a whole household in bringing glory to God's name. Perhaps where this most often takes place is in the lives of our children. I mean, I don't, I don't have children, but in possibly your children. They see, they analyze, and they copy mom and dad. Children remember, and oftentimes they remember things that their parents don't remember doing or saying. What a joy it is if they remember our faithfulness. What a powerful testimony our actions can be. Remain faithful, for God has brought glory in ways that we are unaware. My last point of application is this. It's our response to calamity reveals our hearts. Our response to calamity reveals our hearts. If you want to know what God really means to you, hardship will reveal that. True colors show when suffering takes place. Uh, the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, they wrote a little write-up on one of its parks. Um, it's a little triangle lot in, I believe, in New York, and it's called the Invictus Triangle. And I would like to take a moment to read this little write-up for you as it explains the story of the name behind this park. Right, what is Invictus? And it reads this way, quote, This triangle takes its name from writer William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. The poem is drawn from Henley's experience recovering from the amputation of his left leg in an Edinburgh hospital at a time when hospitalization often meant death. William Ernest Henley was born on August 23, 1849 in Gloucester, England. Henley departed his home city for London at the age of 18, but left the city the two years later after he was bothered by foot pain. Thinking that the sea air might improve the situation, Henley traveled to the resort city of Margate. While there, tubercular arthritis infected his foot, causing necrosis of the bone. Henley had his left leg amputated in 1867, after which doctors told him that this other leg might, that his other leg might have to be removed as well. In refusing their diagnosis, Henley sought out Joseph Lister, the doctor who was in the process of pioneering antiseptic surgery. Henley entered the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh in 1873, determined to beat the infection and keep his remaining leg. 
And during his stay, Henley wrote a collection of poems titled In Hospital, and Invictus was written during Henley's hospitalization. And I would like to take a quick moment to read the words of this poem for you now. This is how the poem goes. It starts like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the foul clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the, the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Behind this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And here's what I want to focus on. The very last, the very last phrase, it says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, William Ernest Henley, he experienced hardship. He was facing amputation, he was facing arthritis and hospitalization. And hospitalization, like that little article said, often for that time it meant death. And Henley wrote these words in response to what he had experienced. From his difficult experiences and current situations, his heart was revealed. And what was his conclusion? What was his response to hardship? He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He believed he could direct his fate. He believed he could sail the currents of life at his command and authority. That was Henley's heart. What will hardship reveal in our hearts? Perhaps it may be a self-centered approach that it reveals. I am the captain of my fate. This illness cannot defeat me. I may be financially struggling, but it is my hand of hard work that can bring me back to stability. Perhaps it may reveal a bitterness towards God. Why could God do this to me? Where is the goodness of God in my life? What did hardship reveal in Job's heart? Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He revealed a faithfulness, a blamelessness in the life of Job. So may our response be the same. May we rest in the goodness of God. Everything can be taken away, but God, God can't be taken away. A good God is always in control. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the story of Job. We thank you for you revealing your goodness in our lives. We thank you for giving us all things that we have, and we thank you for taking away, for it reveals your grace in our lives. I pray that our hearts will reveal faithfulness when calamity strikes. I pray that we will always be thankful for what you've given us, and that we will never turn to sin, never turn to selfishness, never turn to, to cursing you, but always give you the thanks, always giving you the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.